Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I am so excited for today's podcast because we are going to debate. What's the debate about? Well, it's about prostate cancer. And as you all know, prostate cancer has different grades. The grades are pretty much how the cells look under the microscope. So some prostate cancers have very low-grade disease, which means that the potential of this disease to spread to distant organ, to go to regional organs, might be really uh, very minimal to non-existent. So Scott Egner, uh, a urologic oncologist and a professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago, argues that if this is not going to spread, not going to cause problems, why in the world call it cancer? Forget that nomenclature. Let's not call it cancer and watch these patients. Okay, reasonable argument. And he published his opinion in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And you see the link in the podcast. Dr. Jonathan Epstein, a professor of pathology, urology at Johns Hopkins University, uh, he argued the opposite. Well, look, just because it doesn't spread and it's not really causing a lot of issues today, it doesn't mean it's not cancer. It is still cancer and we need to monitor it and watch it because it may actually be cause problems down the road. And if you call it non-cancer, then people will not monitor it and will not really watch it. And then we could have unintended poor consequences and poor outcomes. He published his opinion arguing against that in the Journal of Clinical Oncology as well. What do we do on Healthcare Unfiltered? We bring the authors of these two opinions on the podcast to discuss basically their opinions. I hope that you will learn more about these controversies and really what needs to be done moving forward. The question is, is Gleason 6 prostate cancer a cancer or should we call it something different? Before I air the episode, I really would love for you to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review about the show. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And you can also uh, uh, visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. If you are interested in wearing the best Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt in the business, you need to text me and direct message me and I will gladly mail that to you. Without further ado, Drs. Jonathan Epstein and Scott Egner on Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast. Jonathan, we'll start with you since this is your first time appearance on Healthcare Unfiltered. And let me tell you, if you play your cards right, you may be invited again. Yeah, so I got into the field literally as an intern um, when uh, Dr. Patrick Walsh, who was the pioneer of uh, developing a radical prostatectomy to preserve potency before he came along, basically everybody was impotent and incontinent. He developed a surgery to preserve it in a large majority of men. So we started seeing more prostate cancer here at Hopkins, Johns Hopkins Hospital than any place else in the world. And there was no one here to really look at it. And so they tapped me because I was kind of a gung-ho resident uh, to start uh, you know, focusing on prostate cancer uh, as there was else, no one else here really doing that in pathology. So I started seeing more pathology of the prostate than literally anyone in the world and uh, just got into the field and found it was 
fascinating, partly because the field changes so radically every few years of paradigm shifts, how we treat or diagnose. Um, and I've been, you know, here at Hopkins, 30 something plus years uh, in the field of prostate cancer and GU uh, genital urinary pathology in general. So do you do, do you see any uh, non-prostate cancer GU oncology or just mainly? Yeah, pro? no. So, I, so uh, I'm a genital urinary, I'm actually a general surgical pathologist. I'm the head of uh, surgical pathology at Hopkins. So I'm unusual in that I sign out breast pathology, brain tumors, lung tumors, the whole spectrum of tumors pretty much uh, with a few exceptions. My focus is on urological pathology, which is prostate, bladder, kidney, testis, penis, and scrotum. Uh, I end up seeing more prostate than the other organ systems, partly because it's more common disease than those other organ systems. Um, but I am you know, known as an expert in all of those subspecialties. And so my, my day is basically looking at the large part consults sent to me from all around the countries and outside of the country in those areas uh, of expertise in GU pathology. Um, and then doing research, I also then on a periodic basis will sign out General Hopkins material, which is all human body and, you know, some administrative work and then, you know, lecturing around the world. That's great. So much, uh, such a pleasure to have you on. And uh, Scott, well, I'll, just add, I'll just add one thing that's unique that I do. Pathologists are kind of known as being in a laboratory, don't talk to patients and maybe even have a bad reputation of being, you know, averse to patients. Uh, I am unique in that I'll talk to at least one patient a day um, uh, about their prostate cancer treatment prognosis. Even though I don't, I'm not a urologist, I don't treat them, but I know enough, I know a lot about the field. So uh, they ask cases to be sent to me for my opinion and want my opinion in terms of what does it mean to, uh, for them. That is pretty unique. And usually you guys are in the basement or something like, you know, somewhere. <laughs> Scott, a little bit about you and um, what got you into urology. Now, you obviously represent the surgical spectrum of urology. Yeah, I'm a urologic oncologist who was first introduced to it as a med student in the late 90s. And you know, I take care of patients with prostate, kidney, and testicular cancer. But the bulk of my time clinically and academically is spent on prostate cancer. And things have changed. Uh, over the past couple decades, and we've come a long way in the screening, diagnosis, management, and understanding of prostate cancer. And we should all be proud of that, but I will get into it. But I think we've got a long way to go. And, you know, spending time with thousands upon thousands of men, you know, at different points on that spectrum, certainly my feelings and thoughts have changed over the years. And you know, we're going to dive into a discussion that I think is really important for us to have as a prostate cancer community. And, you know, as all of us would agree, it's always, you know, the goal to be patient centered and focus on what's best for the patient and public health. And uh, it's, it's a great conversation. I mean, Dr. Epstein, uh, there's no one, there's not a pathologist in the world who knows more about, you know, histologic prostate cancer. And I would argue there's probably not a pathologist who knows more about kind of the clinical ramifications of prostate cancer. We disagree on this topic a bit, but I'm, I, I know there's a lot we agree on. And, uh, and I think we'd agree this is an important conversation and debate that the, the community needs to have. That you both agree on a lot of things. The disagreement is a nomenclature, but I wanna just frame a little bit this to listeners who may not really um, understand immediately what we're talking about. So, Jonathan, maybe take us through uh, to start with when it comes to prostate cancer and you are trying to grade it and decide on the quote unquote histologic grade. Um, how do you do that? Obviously, you know, not necessarily the technicality of things, 
But I wanted to focus on the discrepancy between your interpretation and the pathologist next door or pathologist in Chicago. Um, when you label a prostate cancer a particular grade, do you think if I bring 10 pathologists, you all will sign it out as that grade or is there some issues, some issues there? Yes, so grade is probably one of the most important things uh, with prostate cancer in terms of driving prognosis and treatment. It's kind of the bedrock uh, of what's going to happen to you, and, and so it's critical. Um, and when you look under the microscope, grade can vary from tumors that are extremely indolent to extremely aggressive tumors. So prostate cancer, more than any other tumor in the body, has this tremendous range of aggressiveness. Um, um, from Again, tumors that just sit there doing nothing to tumors that will kill you within months. Um, in terms of pathologists, how accurate they are in grading and how reproducible between pathologists, there is variability. Pathologists are getting better, but I would say Literally, I, on a daily basis, I change grades probably 20% of the time, um, either up or down. And the grades are significant enough in terms of the change that would affect treatment and prognosis. Um, sometimes the grades are, you know, vary by, you know, one grade, but sometimes can be even more so. So is what we're talking about, Scott, is this Gleason grade six. That's what we are focused on. Um, so how do you describe to a patient when you have a patient in front of you and they have a Gleason grade six, what do you, I'm the patient, tell me how you describe, how you're breaking the news to me as Gleason six. Yeah, piggybacking on Dr. Epstein's comments, there's tremendous heterogeneity in what prostate cancer looks like. And the big disconnect is, you know, if you take men over the age of 50, depending on which kind of autopsy series you look at, um, more than half of them have histologic prostate cancer. But even in unscreened populations, maybe three or 4% of men are destined to die from prostate cancer. So there's a ton of men walking around with prostate cancer that they never need to know about. And they and, and we would be better off not finding it. So the challenge that we've struggled with and we've made headway is we want to find the men who have prostate cancer that's destined to cause them symptoms, metastasis, pain, death. And we obviously want to do everything possible to prevent those. But there's a huge population of men that we're diagnosing that don't need to know about it. To more directly answer your question, you know, based on all the available data out there, Gleason 6 is extraordinarily common. I'm not aware of a single patient ever that's had symptoms from Gleason 6, nor when they only have Gleason 6. I'm not aware from data that Dr. Epstein and our group and many others have published of Gleason 6, you know, spreading to other parts of the body or a patient dying from it. So this is the challenge that we're, that we're struggling with. And uh, I would also just frame some people that might be listening. Um, it, Gleason 6 is also termed grade group one, and those two terms are somewhat interchangeable. But when you have, when I'm in front of you and I have Gleason grade six, how confident are you with the pathologic interpretation? Because maybe I have seven and you just, I mean, do you send second opinion? Is it the pathologist? That, that's a great point. And there is some, you know, inter and even intra-observer variability in calling Gleason six. Now, the kind of rules have changed dating back to 2014 that Dr. Epstein and a group of pathologists changed where there was a more restrictive definition of Gleason 6. 
But even nowadays, even amongst card-carrying GU pathologists, there is some variability. We certainly lean on our specialists at the University of Chicago, but there are times where people want to get a second opinion and have other people look at it. But the really, the really good news and the encouraging news is for almost all patients with Gleason 6, there are a ton of long-term series that show they do extraordinarily well with surveillance. So we still have a big problem in this country with over-treatment of early-stage prostate cancer. And so Gleason 6, you know, when a, when a, when a card-carrying GU pathologist calls it, I have a high level of confidence that that patient's going to do great with surveillance. Because Jonathan, uh, the 20% uh, that you gave sounded pretty high to me. I was hoping you say like one to 5%, but 20% yeah. is pretty high. Right. No, it's very common to, to change grades. Now, um, a lot of more and more patients are actually, uh, you, you ask, you know, if you were a patient and you get a diagnosis of, of at least a six or seven, regardless, you know, how confident can you be of that diagnosis? And the answer is, Patients know who their clinicians are. They will choose their, often go to a place and choose the clinicians. Um, they don't choose their pathologist. Now the pathologist could be excellent. They could be maybe in New Chicago or Memorial Sloan Kettering. They could you know, have excellent GU pathologists, but you don't know who the pathologists are. Even in top academic centers, they may not have top GU pathologists. So about 20% of the cases I now get as consults are patients driven where they say, you know, the pathology is going to form everything that goes forward with my treatment and prognosis. You know, I want to get a second opinion and, and to be sure. Now, again, I, most pathologists are good and they're accurate, um, but like anything else, it, it depends on experience. But the biggest problem that we'll get into uh, where Scott and I, I guess, have issues is the sampling of the prostate. Because when you have a Gleason 6 on a biopsy, that doesn't mean you have a Gleason 6 in your entire prostate. And it's anywhere from a 20 to even a 35% chance, over a third, that when you have a Gleason 6 in your biopsy, you have higher grade in the cancer. And it can vary from slightly higher to markedly higher. Uh, we've gotten better over time with sampling the more aggressive cancers with imaging, but it's, it's not foolproof. And so that's you know, that's the big issue. If we had a crystal ball to say you had a pure Gleason 6, probably Scott and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. And, and you both get into it in the article. So I'm going to get to this in, in one second. Before we get there, I want to ask the question pertaining to surveillance. Um, I'll start with Scott. What patients with prostate cancer and Gleason 6, group grade one that you just mentioned, that you would not offer active surveillance for? And if you do offer active surveillance to all of these patients, what's your protocol? And is that acceptable, accepted in the broader community? Yeah, let me start more generally. Uh, across the country, 2021 data, about 60% of men with Gleason 6 go on surveillance. I can tell you in my practice where I have probably close to 1,000 men on surveillance, 95% of the men that come in with Gleason 6 go on surveillance. The rare guys who don't go on surveillance have some concerning features where they have really high volume Gleason 6. They might have a big Pyrads 5, or which is a concerning lesion on their MRI. They might have a PSA that's way high and doesn't make sense with their biopsy. They may have a family history where multiple, patient, multiple family members have died of prostate cancer. They may have a germline mutation. And so 
those factors individually and collectively all put them at higher risk of having higher grade cancers that are embedded in the prostate somewhere. So there are instances where I would recommend treatment in that scenario. If you choose active surveillance, what's your protocol? So it's interesting. It's important to know the history and the evolution of active surveillance. It was lambasted um, for a long time, and there were some pioneers and you know iconoclasts who put together series on it. One from Johns Hopkins, Val Carter, you know Lori Klotz from Toronto, and we now have the luxury of ten and fifteen year long term data to know that patients do really well. And to, to more directly answer your question, I was the first one in Chicago about 14, 15 years ago who routinely put people on surveillance and um, people came at me. You know, I One person called me an assassin and it was a crime against humanity. And um, early on, you, know, you, you try to be as conservative as, as possible. And I followed the Bal Carter Hopkins advice where you know, a PSA every six months, a biopsy every year, you know, and you have a low threshold for intervening if there's any changes. We now have a load of data and research and long-term series where we really try to tailor the surveillance regimen. Some guys I pay very close attention to, and there's many guys that are doing surveillance with me that haven't had a biopsy in a long time. We check a PSA once a year and they're still doing great. So we try to tailor it as best as possible. And one thing for me, and I'd be interested to know your opinions, uh, Scott, if, uh, and I tell men that when they're diagnosed with the Gleason 6, I, one of the first questions I ask them, I'll ask them what the PSA, just like you've gone through to make sure there's no disconnect. But I also ask if they've had a multi-parametric MRI, because at least in current practice, I wouldn't feel as comfortable following somebody in active surveillance unless they've had a multi-parametric MRI to make sure they don't have a large lesion or pyrides four or five lesion anteriorly, for example, where the 6 may be a, a gross underestimate of what's going on. We absolutely agree on that. And basically every guy in my surveillance program has an MRI unless they have a reason they can't get an MRI. And Jonathan, what Scott quoted, I want to see if you agree with that. He said 60% of patients with Gleason 6 broadly undergo surveillance. In his practice, about 95%, obviously close to 100%, just with, with few exceptions. Is that what you're seeing in terms of the, I presume this is maybe discrepancy between academic oncology and community oncology or urology? Yeah, there is variability even, um, there's definitely tremendous variability within different countries. Uh, some countries active surveillance is very common and some countries in Asia, for example, it's very uncommon. Um, when I've lectured, they say they literally don't do active surveillance. And even within the United States, there's variation um, academic, private, within within regions. Michigan has, for example, a high active surveillance penetrance, higher than, for example, other states. So uh, there's a lot of uh, variation. Um, uh, sometimes it's not exactly clear why that variation exists. So Jonathan, if there's if there's a disease that has, I'm watching close to 100% of patients, few exceptions, let's say 95 to 100% of patients, and it doesn't cause death, I'm not going to die from it, and it's not going to cause me to have poor quality of life. Why do we care about calling it cancer? It seems like Scott is making a pretty good argument that call it something else, call it uh, whatever, create a new disease for it. Yeah, so the, again, if, if we had a magic crystal ball, we could look into the prostate, say it's a pure Gleason 6, I would have no problem changing the name towards some non-cancerous diagnosis. The problem is 
what you say when you eventually say that, yes, when we follow these Gleason 6s, most of them do well, that's after they've had often a repeat biopsy, they've been followed over time carefully. Uh, and But initially, when you diagnose a Gleason 6, again, a third of them approximately are going to have higher grade cancers. And if you don't find those and follow those patients uh, and find those higher grade cancers or carefully monitor them, some of those patients will progress and end up um, having just a spread of their cancer and becoming clinically a problem. And the biggest, <clears throat> biggest concern on my part, even with active surveillance, a lot of men don't follow it as carefully, uh, even when the clinicians recommend that they get followed. If you all of a sudden say you do not have cancer, um, my concern and the concern of many in the field is that those third of the men that have worse disease won't get followed carefully, will drop out because why get followed carefully if I don't have cancer? Why get a repeat biopsy or an MRI? And the risk is those men will end up suffering from their cancer. So Scott, it's, 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 I, I mean, Jonathan makes a very good point because you know you have, once you follow these patients longitudinally, you're able to tell that their disease is not progressing. And so somehow hindsight 2020, you can go back and say it's not cancer, but you don't know that right away, do you? I mean, that's why you should keep it cancer? Yeah, a lot of things um, to comment on. Jonathan and I agree that one of the concerns, if there's ever a name change, is compliance. But I would similarly argue and push back every urologist has a ton of patients in their practice with elevated PSAs, previously negative biopsies, biopsies that show some precancerous findings like high-grade PIN or ASAP or other findings. And a, a substantial minority of those patients have higher-grade disease, and we follow them and monitor them. And in many ways, a surveillance population is exactly the same, whether we call it Gleason 6 or there's another term where it's kind of downgraded, we would continue to follow them. And the, and the only other comment I would, I would add, and history kind of repeats itself, in the era when everyone diagnosed with prostate cancer got treated with surgery or radiation, in the early days of surveillance, the most common attack on surveillance was, well, 20 to 30% of those guys have higher grade cancers at prostatectomy you've got to treat them and get that higher grade cancer out. We now know that even with surveillance and men that might have smaller high grade lesions, you know, a minority of them, you're going to find them with time and you're going to take care of them. And it is almost a never event that guys have meaningful, bad long-term events, such as a metastasis or death from their prostate cancer. Yeah, but I agree entirely, Scott. But the, the whole key is what you just said, is when you follow them carefully over time, if somebody does have bad disease and we use all our modern techniques and we follow them, yes, almost undoubtedly we'll find that worse disease. But in my opinion, the risk is if you don't call it cancer, I don't think you're going to be following them potentially as carefully, not that the clinicians won't want to follow them as carefully, but that the patients will feel, I don't have to be followed as carefully because I don't have cancer. But even that the clinician, the even even the clinician may not. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think I wouldn't. I wouldn't really downplay that the clinician may not want to follow as well because you know initially it will be a migration from cancer to non-cancer. But with time, five years down the road, it becomes just a non-cancer. And 
and you see these patients, uh, you may not even see them. So there is a risk there. Scott, how do you counter that uh, potential risk? Yeah, you know, perhaps I'm a nihilist, um, but I, I do think that patients bear some responsibility for their health care and follow-up. And in some ways, I don't see it any different than people who go get a colonoscopy and your colonoscopy looks clean or you may have a polyp or two and they tell you to come back in one, two or five years. And it's ultimately the responsibility of the clinician and the patient to make sure there's appropriate follow-up. I kind of see it the same with modern day surveillance for low-risk prostate cancer. And if we were to ever do a name change, I see it very similar to those other situations I just explained. The main issue is if we change the name, they will, people will downplay the disease and then they will not undergo active surveillance. Are there any other issues, Jonathan, that concern you if we forget that term cancer? Yeah, so there are several issues. I think um, uh, one is, again, speaking from a pathology standpoint um, or a scientist standpoint, because I think you can look at this issue both from a practical standpoint, which is what we've been talking about so far, and also a scientific standpoint. From a scientific standpoint, Gleason 6 is cancer. There's just no question about it. Um, it invades tissue. It can extend out of the prostate, uh, goes around nerves, um, can even invade the seminal vesicle. Molecularly, it's cancer. Under the microscope, looks just like cancer. Again, from a biology standpoint, it's cancer. Um, now, Scott and other people have argued it doesn't, if it's a pure Gleason 6, it can't spread, for example, to lung or bones. But we call other things cancerous, skin cancers, we call them cancers, and they don't spread to other sites as well. So there's a precedent for that. The other, I think, aspect of this is patients are getting, and we all, again, I talk to patients, Scott obviously talks to many more, but patients overall are getting more comfortable with the concept that just because you're diagnosed with cancer, it doesn't mean you have to get radically treated, uh, that you can be followed. And if anything, I've seen the pendulum swing, I think almost too far. I talk to patients where they'll have fairly aggressive cancer and they're saying, you know, can I go on active surveillance? Um, and I say, nope, this is a tumor you definitely can't. Um, and that's why, you know, active surveillance is being increasingly adopted. I agree with Scott, it's not accepted as much as we would like it to be in, this United, in the United States, but it's consistently increasing the adoption of active surveillance for the appropriate patient. And I, you know, Scott, I'd like you to respond to this because I'm a little bit sympathetic in all, um, in all fairness to Jonathan's point here. You, you know, obviously I've done a lot of work in lymphomas and, and, and leukemias and, and, you know, I mean, there are these low grade lymphomas, uh, follicular lymphoma grade one, where I may do nothing, um, CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, oftentimes these patients, the majority get observed for a long time. It is still a form of lymphoma. So I guess I can understand that just because you don't do nothing, you don't do anything right away, don't abandon the name cancer immediately. So, so I can understand from my own experience, how do you respond to that? Yeah, these are all phenomenal points and accurate. Cancer is somewhat of a histologic and social construct, and patients and dictionaries, even just benign versus cancer, cancer is something that can multiply endlessly and basically spread to other parts of your body. And we've done this before in prostate cancer, where Gleason 2 through 5 used to be cancer. It's no longer called cancer. 
In other organ systems, such as thyroid, there's been name changes. In bladder cancer, a small subset have been changed. But the point you bring up is really important. This spreads across the cancer spectrum. This conversation has been had on various levels in lymphoma, leukemia, low-grade DCIS of the breast, thyroid. And the question comes up, like, where do we draw the line on what's precancerous versus has the cancer label? And to Jonathan's point, which are all accurate and good ones, I would push back a little bit in that we have current precancerous lesions within the prostate that have some molecular features, you know, and, and, you know, genetic abnormalities that are shared with cancers and molecularly may share some of those things. I'm far more interested in kind of the downstream effects and kind of the population-based impact and, you know, clinical ramifications of what we call cancer and or, or not and that's you know and that's why this is such an important conversation one of the things yeah go ahead yeah, yeah but that's i entirely agree with you scott and then and that's actually was the impetus so I, actually i was the first person to come up at hopkins with the whole grade group uh, system because you know in the old in the gleason system a gleason six the scale goes from two to ten and six doesn't sound great to a patient it sounds like you're in the middle at least um i don't have the lowest grade the most indolent tumor so we came up or i came up with this whole grade group system to basically say a gleason six is a grade one it's one out of five the lowest you can get so it's more intuitive to a patient that they truly have a very indolent, potentially indolent disease. So I think that's helped the conversation with patients to try to align it uh, better. But um, you know, they have to understand that still there's, there's this risk of undersampling. But you know, patients, I think uh, they're increasingly adopting active surveillance. So I don't think that I think this conversation would have had even more impact ten years ago uh, when active surveillance was not being adopted. But I think it's almost becoming obsolete this conversation to some extent because more and more and more patients are recognizing, you know, I can be followed. I think we have more to go. There are two things here. One, Jonathan, is 60% is, that's 40% of people who are not undergoing active surveillance. So I think there's a lot of room to go. And I think that's one of the arguments that uh, Scott makes in his paper, that there's a lot of impact on healthcare costs and, and population thing. But I, I want to, I want you both to comment on something I'm a point that I'm sympathetic to Scott's point here from was his description is, you know, we make a lot of decisions based on a biopsy that we do. And as long as you're getting the right biopsy and the right amount of tissue, we, we have to make these decisions based on that in pretty much every cancer under the sun. You know, you with few rare exceptions, you do the biopsy before you decide on surgery or what you're going to do. So I can understand that, you know, one of your arguments, Jonathan, is that, well, you do the biopsy, it's Gleason 6, but that doesn't guarantee that the entire process is Gleason 6. But what are we going to do? I mean, that's what we have. I mean, we, we can't really keep biopsying more than 12, 24. I mean, we can't keep poking. Yeah, so I think the things we can do, and I think we've made tremendous improvements um, in terms of getting a better handle of what's going on in the prostate. Um, one is by increasing the number of cores, but as you say, there's a limit to how many times you can stick, you know, a person. But uh, with the imaging, with the multiparametric MRI, it's been a quantum leap in better detection of the worst cancer there. Um, so it, in a sense, it doesn't find as accurately the lower grade cancers, which is good, but it's better at highlighting the higher grade cancer. It's not foolproof. It still will miss some high grade cancers. 
but you have to follow patients with biopsies over time. So we will follow, we always do what we call a confirmatory biopsy. So after they've been diagnosed, we'll do another biopsy within let's say a year. And we'll probably, we'll do several other biopsies sequentially and eventually we'll start lengthening them out, um, you know, as Scott suggests. But um, you have to, ultimately you rely on the biopsy. Um, and it's uh, the only way that, uh, again, you can rely on it is uh, using all that you, all the information you have with the imaging, uh, good sampling, um, and hopefully there'll be newer techniques down the road, either molecular or improved imaging that'll even enhance what we do now. Scott, take us through some of your other arguments. You talk about the molecular aspect and you say, this is okay, not a big deal. You talk about the invasion metastasis a little bit. What other arguments do you, you have to convince listeners that this should be labeled as non-cancer? Yeah, I want to touch on something Jonathan said first, and, and I agree with him. You know, nearly every center that does surveillance and every guideline recommends a restaging biopsy, which is basically a second biopsy within six to 18 months of the original one. We have MRI imaging now, which is you know a, a great supplement to try to find potentially higher grade tumors. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that basically every prostate cancer expert over the last five to 10 years would say, we're looking for ways and reasons not to diagnose men with Gleason 6 prostate cancer. And everyone that touts MRI would say, it doesn't show Gleason 6, which is a good thing typically. And you diagnose fewer men with Gleason 6, that's a win. Every screening test that's available above and beyond PSA, you know, 4K, Phi, Select MDX, and, you know, three or four others, they advertise and they have good science to suggest you're going to diagnose fewer men with Gleason 6. Every genomic test that's out there, a tissue-based genomic marker, tries to tell you which ones are the wimpy ones. So, you know, we've come in this direction where we're looking not to diagnose Gleason 6. I was at a conference recently where I asked a big crowd of, you know, of, of clinicians, um, most of which were men. I said, um, guys, out there, you know, many of you have Gleason 6 in your prostate right now. I might have it. One of the three of us probably has it. How many of you want to know if you have Gleason 6 right now? Not a single person raised their hand. So my point is like, no one wants to know. We don't want a diagnosis. Even when we do know it, we want to monitor those men. But I tell guys fairly regularly, I wish I could undiagnose their Gleason 6 because now they're tortured with the label of a cancer. There's so many implications with, you know, psyche, getting insurance, rigorous follow-up, you know, these are all important downstream effects, kind of the social science of, of you know, what the diagnosis entails. And one thing I'd like to stress though, there is a difference. You, you, the numbers that you say are 100% right in terms of autopsy that, you know, you know one third, one, you know, 50% of men walking around and might have cancer. But I've looked at those prostates at autopsy, and typically they're a tiny little focus of cancer when you put the whole prostate through. But when you diagnose it on a needle biopsy, the likelihood is those are bigger tumors, and they're not the tiny incidental tumors that we find in autopsy. And there's an increased risk that there could be a higher grade cancer component. So yes, we can, no question, there's an overtreatment of Gleason 6, but the autopsy data is a different data than when you diagnose it clinically. And I think we all agree. That's why when you diagnose somebody with a Gleason 6, you do follow them because it is a different bird than the autopsy ones that you find. 
The other thing is just, uh, I think it's important um, for people to know, I'm all in favor of changing names. I mean, I was actually instrumental in changing the bladder, one type of bladder cancer, as you mentioned, to a non-cancer. The difference is every cancer that we've changed the name, thyroid's one of them, bladder's one of them, the whole lesion's out. And we see it's all this very indolent lesion. And then we say, fine, it's out. The patient's not at harm. Let's change the name. Um, that's not the situation with the prostate needle. Yeah, as usual, all excellent points. I would push back to, to both of you to give examples in other organ systems. There's rare ones, but nowhere as common as prostate where we call something a can't quote unquote cancer, or we can initiate treatment that is you know fairly aggressive and has potential lifelong side effects for something that we're not seeing on a biopsy that might possibly be there, but we're not seeing. Right. It's, it's an outlier in the cancer world. And that's something we need to, you know, wrestle with and digest and, and talk about. Right. I think actually, you know, it was mentioned in terms of CLL. I mean, it's a very indolent lesion. It's actually in older people, we see it found incidentally all the time um, on other specimens but you follow those patients because they have a chance of going on to an aggressive type of lymphoma. So it's, 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 there's this analogy, but I agree with you entirely. We are over-treating Gleason 6, it's still out there, but I think the, part, the target population that we have to do better with is the clinicians ultimately, because they're the gatekeepers and clinicians shouldn't be, these are the ones who should be recognizing if you have a Gleason 6 and you follow those patients carefully, we shouldn't be aggressively treating them. But what would you two tell me, and you both have more content expertise than me, what if I told you that 40% of patients with CLL are going to get cytotoxic chemotherapy? Would you rethink the name of it? Well, no, I mean, the, and, and a lot of CLL eventually actually do. I mean, CLL, about one third, they never require therapy at all. Over 50% of patients with CLL at the time of diagnosis are completely asymptomatic, incidental, probably close to 70%. <clears throat> but there is a subset of CLL, excuse me, that will require therapy for sure. Um, and I, obviously that's why they're followed and 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 uh, there are indications when to treat and all of this. I think- But I would say to you, if you spent every day in the clinic seeing guys that might have potential long-term side effects from getting chemotherapy for something that may not have needed chemotherapy, it would give you pause. Okay. And I would argue, you know, you're following those guys and then ultimately determining if and when they would benefit from chemotherapy. That's the art of, you know, medical decision-making and counseling. And I would argue whether we call it Gleason 6 or whether we call it something like an acinar neoplasm or precancerous lesion of whatever the term might be, the same exact thing would happen. We should monitor all of them, whether it's Gleason 6 or acinar neoplasm. And at some point down the road, based on new information, clinically or histologically, we might have a discussion on whether treatment's warranted. So it, it's hard to listen to this conversation and not step back and, 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 and wonder if the entire problem is because of screening. In other words, I mean, and I know this is not a screening episode. I mean, I've, I've, I've done a few, few on those, but... But the more I listen to this, I mean, the whole reason we're even having this conversation, come to think of it, is <laughs> because we're detecting um, a low-grade prostate cancer because somebody had a PSA. Uh, so without going to the rabbit hole of screening, I mean, thoughts on that? Yeah. 
my philosophy is, I mean, I've been screened since I was, you know, under 40, partly because I see all these cancers in, you know, young men. Um, but um, my philosophy is I'd rather know about something and make an intelligent decision on it. Uh, meaning I'd like to know if I had a cancer, decide if it's indolent, not indolent, make an educated uh, decision on, you know, active surveillance, not active surveillance, as opposed to not screening head in the sand and wake up one day with metastatic cancer, which just happens if you totally do no screen. As usual, I agree with everything Jonathan said. I've had a PSA myself. The issue that comes up is there's a lot of unintelligent decisions that are done every darn day in the United States and elsewhere when it comes to healthcare for a variety of reasons. And when it comes to screening, it's unassailable fact that since the era of screening, you know, age-adjusted mortality from prostate cancer has gone down by about 50%. That's hallelujah, huge public health success story. But you can't tell that story without telling the story about literally the millions upon millions of men and the way, way, way higher likelihood that a man found out about a prostate cancer, got unnecessarily treated, hopefully had no side effects, but a significant number of them subsequently had lifelong side effects for something they never needed to know about. So that's that's kind of the full package of what screening is. Let me ask you, Scott, just another question. So as, as you know, there's probably going to be down the road, it's increasingly so, a subset of men with three plus four equals seven, maybe low volume, low PSA, older patient, who we also eventually with data, I mean, it's happening now, 15% uh, probably, 20% are undergoing active surveillance. So do you say to those, eventually are you saying, Three plus four equals seven. We should not call that cancer. But in twenty twenty two, no. But I agree with you. There's a lot of those men that benefit from surveillance. I mean, it's humbling as someone who chose a career to try to cure people of cancer and do do good. That even with you know pattern four disease, low volume, which in general gets treated, even with me, in the you know watchful waiting, surveillance monitoring, you know, a subset of them are going to have really bad things, but it's nowhere near 50% or greater. So we're still over-treating a lot of men. So, right. you know, this all is a kind of a stepwise evolution, which is why we're just talking. I mean, active surveillance was basically never done. It was like, you know, 5% of, of healthy men with Gleason 6. We've come a long way. We're now 60%, but it's, that's why, um, you know, this conversation about nomenclature, I can tell you, for me, has gone back about a decade, but I um, I used to only whisper it after a drink or two to close friends because it was like <laughs> embarrassing to talk about. Now I want to shout it from the rooftops because we've we've come to a place where I think the timing is more than ripe to have it. I think the fact that other countries are achieving levels of 90 percent plus, uh, even higher, I think speaks to the fact that, I mean, I don't think. People in the United States are dramatically different than Canada or Scandinavia necessarily. I think it's the messaging. The messaging used to be cancer treated early. The earlier you catch it, the better. Um, but labels cancer is just this you know, monolithic title, not separating what types of cancers there are. But the fact that other countries can achieve that 90, 95% active surveillance for low-grade cancers, to me says, and they still call it cancers in those countries, um, says we can do the same thing um, without changing the name. C completely agree. And in many of the talks I give, I argue that we should, at least in the sense of prostate cancer, be more Swedish, because to me, they're kind of the exemplar of how this should go. But we have a very unique country 
in healthcare delivery and and you know incentives and um, we're not going to get into that, but um, I, I'm hopeful and optimistic we can make even more progress. But I do. <clears throat> Again, I, I said I don't want to go through down the rabbit hole of screening, but but I must go down one just one of them because you mentioned age-adjusted mortality of prostate cancer went down by fifty percent, and I think that's very commendable. But many of screening uh, experts would argue that this is not the logical endpoint of screening. You have to really demonstrate overall mortality reduction because what's missing when you focus on disease-related mortality is obviously the risk of morbidity over diagnosis. And, and when you look at taking healthy men who have no symptoms and screening them, you must demonstrate on a population level uh, base, which is something of interest to you, Scott, that the overall mortality, not disease-specific mortality, has been reduced. And, and this has not been shown with PSA. Yeah, a, a, a terrific point and comes up semi-regularly. Any specific disease, you know, whether it's, um, you know, cancer-related across the spectrum, even the common ones, breast, colorectal, lung, prostate, you know, those are common causes of cancer death, but on a population level, the likelihood of any individual dying from that is still relatively low. And so I'm not aware of any cancer screening modality that has shown overall on a population-based screening level that's shown a decrease in overall mortality, but many of them have shown cancer-specific improvements. That's true, actually. And that's where the screening issue is, is really a hotly debated topic. But obviously, this is not the, the, the topic of today. Maybe my last uh, uh, question I want you to guys discuss before we have some parting comments is the molecular aspect of cancer. Uh, I think that as a medical oncologist myself, um, I, I'm a firm believer that cancer is driven today in 2022, 2023. We understand what drives cancer evolution and lots of progress on the uh, genetic level and all of that you know, good stuff. But what Scott argues is this is not enough. Or even you see some molecular features of Gleason 6 to a higher grade, this is not enough. Scott, do you wanna elaborate on that point and hear Jonathan's counter argument after that? Yeah, it's clear fact that, you know, garden variety Gleason 6 on biopsy, you know, depending on the study, 10 to 20% have some type of molecular high-risk feature by, you know, commercially available tests or laboratory-based tests that aren't commercially available. And that's important to know but I always have such a hard time reconciling that with clinical outcome data. Let's go back to you know the Johns Hopkins data where there were 2,000 men with low-risk Gleason 6 prostate cancer that did surveillance. If they were profiled at the time of diagnosis, let's say 10, 15, 20% would have had higher-risk molecular features, yet every single one of them did great on surveillance out to 15 years where the chances of metastasis or death at 15 years was 0.1%. You, you quite literally can't get any better than that. So that's something we need to sort out it as a community. My concern with a lot of these currently available genomic tests, when they're done on low-risk patients, it's just going to lead to some subset of them getting unnecessarily overtreated. Yeah, my good point, Scott. So my, I guess if you look at the data for following men with Gleason 6 and to say that you know 0.01% eventually die of the tumor when you follow them, the issue with that is a third of those men end up having higher grade cancer and are treated, at least historically have been treated. 
So that's not saying the same as taking a group of Gleason 6 patients on their first biopsy, never treat them, um, and see what happens to them. Because if you did that, uh, a higher percentage of them would have worse disease and eventually would die of their tumor. So if you had to all call that initial group of a thousand men, no cancer, for example, and let's just say hypothetically, they were not followed that carefully, hypothetically, because you didn't call them cancer. Some of a higher percentage of those men are going to be dying than the statistics you quote. We, we agree on all of that. And I would just say the goal of screening and the goal of guys who are on surveillance are exactly the same. It's basically, if you're a healthy guy, you know, use our tools available to find whether there's pattern four or higher. And at that point, make a decision on whether it's worth treating and by what modality. So, so what is the path forward? I, I, I want to try to, I, I want to try to summarize a few things for listeners. You both agree that we do active surveillance for low-grade disease. I think you both agree we should surveillance survey more patients of Gleason 6 that are currently existing in the community, right? I mean, 60%, I still think we have ways to go. I, I, you know, Jonathan argues that the nomenclature thing is almost obsolete in 2022, 2022. Maybe parting comments or concluding remarks, trying to give some points to listeners where they hopefully are less confused than when we first started this conversation. <laughs> Jonathan, you go ahead first. Yeah, so I agree with, you know, with Scott and everything you've said, and we both agree that, uh, that you know, the vast majority of men with least than six on biopsy should undergo active surveillance. Uh, I guess where I disagree is I think those men have to be followed carefully to find the subset that do have worse disease that have been unsampled. And I think changing the name potentially leads to a decreased likelihood we will find that worse disease. I think the goal in the future for prostate cancer is not just to do active surveillance for Gleason 6 and their correct patients, but to find the subset of men, for example, with Gleason 7 that potentially could undergo active surveillance as well. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I think it doesn't mean we don't call it cancer when we find that group of seven that doesn't, uh, we think should undergo active surveillance. I don't think changing the name is the key thing. I think the key thing is educating patients more, uh, educating clinicians more, maybe changing, you know, if it's uh, in terms of compensation, medical, uh, uh, monetary compensation for what you do, if that's going to potentially change practice patterns, that's important. Um, but again, just like other countries have adopted active surveillance in the 90% for the appropriate patients, I think we can do the same with proper education, but changing the name, I don't think is the solution. Scott? Yeah, I mean, this conversation is wonderful because, you know, Jonathan and I come out with this paper and we look like polar opposites. And I, I've, I've come to learn more and more, we agree more and more. And I don't say that just out of, you know, convenience because we're on the same podcast here. Everything Jonathan said is correct, but it's a utopian ideal that I think we're going to have a hard time getting to where, you know, clinicians do the right thing for the right reasons, or you can't treat someone because of insurance, you know, won't allow it. And we get to this kind of 90 to 100% ideal. I think where we disagree is I think that public health would be dramatically better if we called it some type of precancerous lesion. People would still kind of monitor it. They'd be, have enough there that they still want to see their doctor. It's like a polyp on their colonoscopy. And I think um, 
kind of the world would be a better place if that was the case. There'd be less carnage and we'd still be able to save all the lives we intend to with screening. Jonathan very appropriately thinks, you know, there's going to be some downstream effects that, you know, that, that that might play out differently and people would disappear and maybe there'd be a lot more men dying than there are now. I, I think there's a load of data to suggest otherwise, but that's why we have these conversations. I think the psychological impact of the diagnosis on the physician and on the patient cannot be, uh, you know, um, downplayed. I mean, there's no question that um, from a patient perspective, when you label something as cancer, the anxiety, a lot of things become more heightened. On a physician's standpoint, there's a lot of awareness, a lot of guidelines that they need to follow. And there's also, you know, fear from litigation sometimes. Like, you know, if you actually label something that is cancer, if it's non-cancer and you don't do much, it's very different than if it's cancer and something else. You know, I mean, you can imagine so many of these things that are unintended consequences that we need to resolve as a medical community. To your point, it's chilling to read the papers that when a guy's diagnosed with prostate cancer, even Gleason 6, if you look at population-based data, suicide rates go up in the six months following. I mean, that is, I'm not saying it's common, obviously, oh, no, but, but there's is. a statistically significant increase, even in low-grade cancers. And that's the impact that, you know, identity and, you know, self-image and, you know, and, and worrying about something that really doesn't need any worrying. That's actually just in terms of the, another point relative to that. So as you mentioned, a lot of times every day I'm signing out things that somebody else called <clears throat> a Gleason 6. I should say that, um, you know, that I look at and this is Gleason 7. So in those cases, if they were not called cancer, um, those men are walking around with a much higher risk lesion. So we're again, they're potential for, they wouldn't probably get a repeat biopsy. We wouldn't do, you know, a multi-parametric MRI. We wouldn't be following them the same. So yeah. everything predicated where you say, we have a Gleason 6, let's not call it cancer. That's predicated on being an accurate diagnosis, which in many cases. Yeah, agree. I, I, if my pipe dream, and, and I, there's a large group of people that agree with me, if my pipe dream of this name change ever happens, I predict what would happen is kind of secular changes is that the pathologists, you know, if they saw a lot of Gleason 6 or they had some concerns or there was some ambiguity, would err on the side of calling something, you know, pattern four. And, and that's totally justifiable. Um, but I stand by the comment that I think, you know, public health would be better if we if we made this change. I like it way better, Jonathan, when you and others, you know, the second opinion on, on, on a pathology slide said, it's not Gleason 6 or Gleason 7, it's no cancer at all. Those are fun conversations as clinicians where we tell tell the patient we get to take away their cancer label. Sure, absolutely. I love this conversation. I'm very grateful for your time. And uh, for those who are watching it, Scott usually does not have a mustache, but he actually grows the mustache because we're taping in Movember. Uh, Jonathan clearly is not an advocate. I'm not an advocate of prostate cancer because we decided not to grow a mustache. So <laughs> I had a mustache for so many years. I looked 10 years younger when I took it off. So uh, hesitancy to put it well, I think Scott wins because he, he has the mustache. Me and you don't have the mustache. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know how both, uh, how busy you are. We've really waited several months to get this done and I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. And, um, We'll, uh, we'll see you in the next few months at uh, future meetings and we'll, we'll, we'll keep the debate going.
All right. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate you tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this friendly debate and podcast that I had with Drs. Epstein and Egner. I hope you can support the podcast by subscribing to it and rating it and offering a brief review, telling your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Also, by the way, you need to consider ordering my book, which is coming very soon. I'll tell you about that some other time. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Winston Churchill. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Until next time, take care.